you know, and I just want to be down there. So, sorry, that's, that's me. But anyway, turn with me to page 831 <laughs> in your pew Bibles. Uh, the Bible's right in front of you. Uh, to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 2 Peter is after 1 Peter. Page 831 is after page 830, if you, if you can follow that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but while you're turning there, let me just say this. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 2 is all about false teachers in the church. Uh, verses 1 through 3 concern the destructiveness <clears throat> of, of false teachers. Verses 4 through 9 discuss examples of false teachers and their judgment to come. Verses uh, 10 through 17 touch on the depravity of false teachers and gives examples of actions false teachers take in their depravity. And finally, verses 18 through 22 talk about the deceptions of false teachers through their methods and promises. We're only going to look at verses 1 through 10, though, this morning. So 2 Peter 2, 1 through 10, it begins like this. It says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their con condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, to hold the, unrighteousness for, or the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings." Those are strong words, right? We, we find out as we read that uh, the original fathers, church fathers, were fighters. The apostles were fighters. They struggled for the church, for the good of the church, and preserving the excellencies of Christ as we find in the Bible. And in the first few centuries of the church, exactly what Peter said did happen. Heretics arose with errant ideas which undermined the nature of, the, uh, of Christ and and uh, the gospel's core message. And that, was, that is something we've always struggled with. We, we struggle with it till today, today, to today. I can't talk this morning. Blah, blah, blah. Um, did you know that if you were off course by one degree, just one degree, right? Uh, you, after one foot, you miss your goal, you miss your target by 0.2 inches. That, that for every one degree a plane flies off course, it, it uh, misses its destination by one mile for every 60 miles of flight. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? If you've ever done target practice, you would know this, right? Satan, you know, you watch these shows where people are like, pew, 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 and they shoot 
people like straight, you know, that's not, that's not the way it is. It just doesn't happen. Um, whether it be an arrow or a, or a gun. Hey, guys, how are you? <laughs> but the point is that Satan doesn't need to, de- to destroy the church. That's not what he needs to do. He just needs it to be one degree off, just one degree off, causing a growing chasm between God and salvation. It may look like truth. It may be dressed in some of the garb of truth, Christian garb. It may use much of the same language, but it isn't gospel truth any longer. Therefore, it's destructive. And I would remind you that uh, Barna told us that only 13% of teaching pastors have a biblical worldview anymore. And that's very alarming. So this is a big issue right now in the church. In Greek tragedy, the word hamartia uh, described how a Greek hero undergoes great pain and great suffering because they make one small mistake or they have like one small character flaw. And so hamartia is this word that Paul uses to describe sin in the New Testament, missing the mark even by one degree, just off. And Peter states clearly that those who lead us astray will come from among us, right? Acts chapter 20 tells us the same thing. It says, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. They secretly introduce destructive heresies and many follow, bringing the way of truth into disrepute. Right now, as Bible-believing Christians, if that is what you call yourself, you are in the cultural minority right now. Your view or your views on Christ as the only way of salvation is not what Oprah preaches, right? It's very different than what, what other people would say. Your views on marriage being between one man and one woman only, or, or that Sex is the only, only uh, marriage is the only place reserved for the sexual relationship. It's very unpopular these days. Or that homosexuality is actually a sin. That is unpopular these days. Among many other things that we hold as, as values and beliefs in the church, all of that has been brought into disrepute. In holding traditionally Christian values, under conviction of the scriptures, you are now labeled as hateful and phobic. Hateful and phobic, even though you're not. Sadly, many professing Christians are capitulating to these ideas, these thoughts, possibly to avoid suffering or persecution or just being uncomfortable, or maybe they are actually deceived. Who knows? But the point is that we expect attack from the outside, don't we? But it often happens that our own people turn from right doctrine, turn from dogma, turn from the theology which the church has always held onto, and they begin to attack within. Every church is having this problem right now. C.S. Lewis once said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. 
The only positive thing that false teachers bring to the church is that they, have, they force us to abandon indifference, right? To explore exactly what God says to us in his word, in the Bible, if you stick with it. If you stick with it. My wife was, we went walking, uh, Maniunk has this trail with all the stairs all throughout Maniunk. You just wind up and down these stairs. It's, it's a workout. I need the workout, <laughs> obviously. And uh, we were doing that the other day, and then we stopped and had coffee, and she was reminiscing about her own journey in Christ, her own spiritual growth, because she's doing the Sonship course with many of us. And uh, there's this chart in the Sonship course, you know, do you act like an orphan child or a, actually a child of God? And she said, you know, 10, 15 years ago when she first did the Sonship course, like she had all these boxes checked off on the orphan column, right? And um, that this time around, she saw growth in herself. And she was, she was happy for that. And she said there were two reasons that this happened. She goes, the first reason is extreme desire. She has, she has had an extreme desire to p- pursue Jesus all these years. And she was, she's, my wife is very logical, very, uh, you know, l- not like me. I'm like, people describe me as passionate. Kim, Kim is very logical and, you know, uh, thrifty and things like that. I'm not. <laughs> and uh, so, so she's always wanted this passionate thing with Jesus. And so she's developed this extreme desire to follow Jesus. And the second thing was time. Extreme desire and time. I thought that was brilliant. Trouble is that many don't develop that. They don't pray for that extreme desire, and they don't stay the long course. I am getting texts like crazy. It's driving me crazy. Um, they, 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 they don't stay the long course, right, to see Jesus transform them. When they come up against something that they don't like in the Scriptures, they don't take the time to really explore it with Jesus and see that there's really a reason for that thing, even if it's very unpopular in culture. And in giving up, they turn to false ideas and the damage is finally done. And that's alarming. We have whole church creeds that were written to solidify the church's position on certain things against certain heresies which arose over time. And in reading them, you can see, if you take the time, the issues that they faced. So what would the church look like if God's truth became a matter of life and death to us. Literally a matter of life and death to us. That evangelism class would be full, I guarantee you. We live in a postmodern, post-Christian America, don't we? This is where we live. Alyssa Childers writes in her book, Another Gospel, which is right back there on the shelf. Take one if you want, want one. It's a good book. She says, postmodernism, that's like music to my ears, those engines going by, sorry. Postmodernism rejects the idea that absolute truth can be known. With an emphasis on social activism and reaching those who were marginalized, oppressed, and forgotten by the hierarchical structures of the modern church, emergent or progressive Christianity was the new kid on the block that everyone wanted to know about. And, and that's, that's been around for couple decades now it's been growing. Emergent Village was one of the first organized sort of groups of the progressive Christian movement and emergent leader uh, Tony Jones uh, published an article that was actually written by the theologian 
Laron Schultz, if I say his name correctly, explaining why their movement had no statement of faith. And listen to what he says. He says, Emergent aims to facilitate a conversation among persons committed to living out faithfully the call to participate in the reconciling mission to the biblical God. Now, if you stop there, that's awesome. That's great. I want to talk about that, right? But he continues. He says, a statement of faith, which every church has, by the way, we have one. It is just the principles that we, we say that we believe together. They're the, the non-negotiables of a church, of the gospel, right? And he says, a statement of faith tends to stop conversation. Too often, they create an environment in which real conversation, you hear, that, hear how he says that, real conversation. The other conversation is not really real because it's based on things that we believe, right? Uh, real conversation is avoided out of fear that critical reflection on one or more of the sacred positions, propositions, will lead to excommunication from the community. Now, did you hear that? I hope you heard that. Because they have shifted the voice onto human opinion and actually even human feeling and they've opened the door to challenge all the long-standing, solid, proven beliefs of the church, of the faith. Often they are focusing on felt trauma from people, right? Those who have felt hurt by the church, and they're not basing it on what Scripture says any longer. This is a big shift. Even when those who claim trauma Usually, if you've been around them long enough, if you've been a leader in the church long enough, you find out that they have simply experienced church discipline due to their own sin, and they didn't like that. And that's the point, isn't it? That the preservation of God's truth is much more important than individual opinion or feeling. It is a, it is a matter of life and death. <coughs> uh, in his prescription against heretics, Tertullian, which was an old church father, uh, says this. It's a little hard to follow, but just listen to it. For as they are heretics, they cannot be true Christians, because it is not from Christ that they get that which they pursue on their own mere choice, and from their, the pursuit incur and admit the name of heretic. Thus, not being Christians, they have acquired no right to the Christian scriptures, and it may be very, very fairly said to them, who are you? When and whence did you come? Like, where'd you come from, right? As you are none of mine, what have you, do, have you to do with that which is mine? Indeed, Marcion, which we heard about, he's a heretic from the second and third century. By what right do you hew my wood? You chop my wood, right? <coughs> Excuse me, my throat's all messed up. By whose permission, Valentinus, which is another heretic from, I think, the third century, are you diverting the streams of my fountain? I like that one. Diverting the streams of my fountain. I agree with Tertullian there. If you are, are going to give up on the Bible's authority and, and you're going to borrow from any faith tradition, maybe, maybe the Christian tradition is your, where you stand the most, but you, you end up borrowing from Buddhism or whatever, I don't care. Just please, please, please do not use the words Christian or church on your signage. Make up a new thing because you already have. It is no 
longer the gospel. It is no longer the gospel. Ancient heresies are important to study because strains reappear in modern religious systems claiming to be compatible with Christianity, and they are not. A good example might be seen in a comparison in a quote from Star Trek V in a dialogue between Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy. If you've seen the movie, and the Enterprise had gone out to the center of the universe to find God, and they didn't find him. And we're going to compare that with a quote from a, a third century Gnostic heretic. And he, and he says, Dr. McCoy says, is God really out there, Jim? Right? I'm not good at whatevers. But Captain Kirk says, maybe he's not out there, Bones, but maybe he's here in the human heart. Oh, this sounds so nice. Oh, Captain Kirk's talking about God. Oh, we're on the right track. Right? That's the way people feel when they hear that. Well, Minoimus, if I say his name correctly, I'm not sure. Uh, he said, seek for him, for him from out of thyself and learn my God is my mind, my understanding, my soul, my body. If you accurately investigate these points, you will discover God himself, unity and plurality in thyself, according to that tittle, and that he finds that the outlet for deity to be from thyself. Sounds nice. Oh, God within us, right? Now, there's, there's some crossover there, isn't there? But really what he is saying is he's, is he's shifting divinity to us and he's erasing God altogether. He really is. Captain Kirk's errant views may sell movies, but when explored, we realize their destructive nature. Remember a couple of weeks ago at the State of the Union talk, we, we talked about how for the last 200 years we've developed this civic, non-offensive religion. Can't say that Jesus is the only way in that, right? Most heresies in the first five centuries centered around differing opinions about who Christ was, what manner of being was, what was his relationship with God the Father, as they, many of them do today, right? And a heresy is really defined as an opinion or a doctrine not in line with accepted teaching of the church, the opposite of orthodoxy. And if you don't know what orthodoxy means, it means right thinking, correct thinking. For instance, which statement best describes the person of Christ. Christ was a divine spirit, not a physical man, which Gnostics believed, by the way. Christ was a man that had a divine spirit dwelling within him. Christ was a great prophet, but not divine. Christ was divine, but on a lower level than the Father. And Christ was fully God and fully man of one substance with the Father. Well, if you've been around church long enough, you should know that the last one is what the church believes that the Scripture teaches, and it does. And I'd venture to guess that many of us kind of get caught up in number four there. We think, well, may maybe he is a little bit below God the Father, but that's not what Scripture teaches. These are some of the arguments that have surrounded Christ for the centuries since his, his uh, ascension. But this passage today confirms to us what we said in the past weeks, that there is no difference between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. God is still consistent all the way through the Bible. He's in charge, and He will punish without impunity those who twist His word and lead people astray. 
When false teachers whisper sweet words into the ears of immature Christians, the body of Christ suffers a great disunity, a breaking apart, and it loses the distinctive faith in the unique person and work of Jesus Christ. So right now, more than ever, believers should apply themselves to really learning biblical truth and living out of the principles of the faith. And the, 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 the rub with that is that you've got to do it in love. That's hard. And you do need the Holy Spirit for that, don't you? The early church defined heresies as those doctrines or teachings that change the nature of the faith so fundamentally that it no longer can be trusted to be saving faith. The three biggest heresies mentioned in the New Testament are Judaizing, and if you've been studying the Sonship course with us on uh, Tuesday or Thursday nights, uh, that's what Paul was arguing in, in the book of Galatians. We had to read all the, way, all the way through that book. And it is a form of legal, legalism, really, placing Jewish requirements on new believers in order to be saved, like circumcision, things like that. There was antinomianism, anti-against, meaning, meaning against, nomos is law, which says once saved, anything goes. You can do whatever you want. You live however you please. And it was really an invitation to licentiousness driven uh, or arising from the belief that due to grace, due to the grace of Christ, we need not bother or follow the Mosaic law anymore. That not, all that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Never mind that the faith came to Abraham 430 years before the law was given to Moses, right? And so faith came first, but the law was God's expression of how we should live and, and what is the best way to live and what, what, what is his character like and what's he want us to make important in life. And then we had Gnosticism, which is, can get very complicated. I, I, I'm not going to explain it well to you this morning, but it's based off of really sort of a spiritual elitism. Uh, Harold Brown writes, ordinary people may make do with simple faith, but the Gnostic knows the secrets and belongs to a spiritual elite. And, you know, we've, we, we've had, we've had, we all know those people, that, those people that, that think that, you know, you can see it in their face when they're looking at you like, you don't really know, but I know because I have like the corner on the Holy Spirit and all that kind of stuff. One of the earliest uh, heresies the church dealt with after the time of the apostles was Arianism, which came around the 4th century and it denied the absolute divinity of Jesus as being equal to God the Father. And then we had Marcion, what we, which we've talked about in the past, in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, who separated what, we saw, what he saw as the Old Testament vengeful God. He thought that God was evil, right, the God of creation, with the New Testament God, which he saw as forgiving and merciful, rather than acknowledging the unity of God all throughout the Scriptures. Then we had docetism, you know, that asserted that sacraments that were, uh, they, they weren't effectual if they were led by pastors who had apostatized during persecution. And it really made sacraments dependent on human worthiness rather than on God's mercy. And there were plenty, of, plenty more. They all had their little destructive sort of mind worm in them, you know. But in verses 4 through 9, Peter gives three examples of God's judgment against sinners to prove that God always brings punishment to false teachers. First, the angels who sinned, then the world of Noah, all the people around Noah, and then Sodom and Gomorrah for their sexual perversion. 
But what we see is that heresies are still alive today in prosperity gospel preachers on the TV or on the internet, pastors saying that the Old Testament is irrelevant to Christians, which was what Andy Stanley has recently said. But the modern church still wrestles against false teachers quite often, quite often. But it's not just theological heresies, is it, which negatively influence the church. Sometimes they come in the form of sociopolitical ideologies. Typically, we don't preach on political issues, but I'm going to get a little political today because when those ideologies out there start to infiltrate the church and they act as worldviews and damage the church, then it's my job to, to preach on that, right? But right now, we are experiencing a worldview clash influencing the church and its witness with very practical outcomes on the lives of some Christians who are unknowingly sort of adopting a worldview which deteriorates their biblical Christian worldview. It is robbing them of faith. It is pulling them away from Christ. It's pulling them out of the church. There have been other philosophical or ideological threats to the church over history, um, but this is simply the newest, right? And this new worldview is born out of two concepts, critical theory and intersectionality. Now, don't get all upset with me. Just wait. Wait and listen, right? Critical theory first asserts that people can be divided into two groups, the powerful or those with power or those without power, right? Secondly, it asserts that those with power always oppress the powerless, which is not always true. Thirdly, the categories of oppressed and oppressor are based on group identities such as ethnicity and gender and religion and sexual orientation and income, and the list could go on. And in this line of thinking, you can actually be an oppressor in one category, but an oppressed person in another due to your differing identities, which is called intersectionality, right? They intersect. For instance, two white men right now are seen as oppressors. That's, what, that's the common narrative right now. But if one is a homosexual man, he is better off than the other guy because he is viewed as oppressed being homosexual. Therefore, intersectionality seeks to measure levels of power and oppression, and the more oppressed you are, the more value and the more moral authority you have according to critical theory. The positive out outcome of critical theory is that it's gotten many of us who would, wouldn't normally consider the plight of others to actually think about that. That's a good thing. However, although critical theory is a theory, much like evolution is just a theory, and you know I don't believe in that, it acts as a worldview, as does evolution act like a worldview. And in acting as such, there are three major conflicts between Christianity and critical theory. Firstly, critical theory claims our value lies in our various identities, whereas Christianity claims our value comes from humanity's being created in God's image. That's our real value, no matter who you are. Secondly, critical theory pits people against one another. It's, it's not... It doesn't bring people together. It drives them apart. Whereas Christianity says God created us all equal. We were the ones that said that, right? 
that whereas Christ, you know, so we, Christianity says we are all equal. We are equally valuable in the eyes of God. We are equally guilty of sin in the eyes of God. We are equally able to find grace and mercy in Christ. And we are equally called to forgive. And there's no forgiveness in critical theory. The Bible defines sin as anything which violates God's design for humankind, including oppression of others. But critical theory only defines sin as oppression of others. Did you hear that? It only defines sin as oppression of others. Therefore, violence, jealousy, theft, anger, and the like from the oppressed are only considered excusable reactions towards the oppressor. Think about the riots in the past couple of years. Nobody was convicted. Nobody was driven because they were the oppressed acting out, and that's okay. That's critical theory. This is because critical theory sees only oppression as sinful, and the oppressed are always innocent, no matter what. Thirdly, the solution of salvation is errant. Since critical theory says salvation is only found through social liberation achieved through activism. That's why activism is such a big thing right now wasn't when I was a kid, right? Like penance through reparation and suffering of the former oppressor because the roles have to flip. If you were the oppressor, you're going to become the oppressed now. You don't become reconciled, you become the oppressed, and there you have a new oppressor. Whereas the Bible says that all are guilty of sin and all can find salvation and forgiveness in the gospel of Christ. The Bible is replete with the call to seek justice and act on liberating the oppressed. It's there. We acknowledge this as an integral part of the biblical message near and dear to God's heart. If it wasn't for the church, there would still be slavery. Christians attacked that. The gospel simply goes one step further in that it not only gives value to all people, it also holds everyone responsible for their own sin, personal and corporate sin. Therefore, we cannot interpret that Jesus' kingdom is reserved only for the poor and the oppressed. David, Moses, Abraham, Nicodemus, and Paul were all living proof of that, that the wealthy, the powerful, and the educated are also in need and equally welcome in God's kingdom. Likewise, people such as the Samaritan woman at the well, one that we would consider to be an oppressed person, are equally culpable for their sin and are able to find grace in Jesus as well. Remember, Jesus confronted her on her sin even though she was oppressed. He was very understanding, but he confronted her. Everyone equal according to the gospel. That's been our language for the centuries. Critical theory and intersectionality are having far-reaching effects on society, on the church, and our ability to communicate the gospel. Christians need to be prayerful, And they need to be thoughtful in considering the lens that we choose to see the world through in order to stay true to the actual gospel. Seeking justice as it flows from the throne of Christ and not from some theory out there in the world. The freeing power of the gospel in the lives of people.
Another challenge the church, uh, to the church are political ideologies, such as socialism and communism, which view Christianity as subversive. They are not friendly to Christianity. And I know a lot of you young people might think that socialism is the model. Of, no, I don't think so. No, not at all. I, I talked about this once years ago, and all the college students were like, oh, I, I don't think Jason really understands socialism. Anyway, <laughs> in an article in Touchstone uh, this June, actually, titled Babylon's Furnace, Rod Dreher, he wrote this book, The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. He's also written uh, Live Not by Lies and some other, some other books. But um, he explores the feelings of Christians who resisted and survived socialist or communist systems and then were able to emigrate to America. And they, he, he, interviewed, he, he interviewed one woman, and she made some very strong statements, and he goes, wow, she's just being intense. So he went and interviewed a whole boatload of other ones, and from the Czech Republic and Poland, places like that. And every single woman, every single person said that they believe that there are clear signs that we are headed towards a totalitarian regime, a one-party system which controls everything. He states that authoritarian regimes only care about your obedience. They don't care about what you believe. But totalitarian regimes want your soul. That under them, everything is political. Doesn't it feel that way these days? I'm obviously preaching on this stuff. And everything being political means your personal belief system is political now. American Christians, conditioned as we have been to the sort of therapeutic mindset, uh, this desire for only safety and well-being, fail to perceive, perceive the totalitarian nature of wokeness. He says that we will surrender power to authorities which promise to protect and promote our therapeutic desires, especially in the area of sexual freedom. And so using the tools of critical theory and intersectionality, we have an absolute recipe for disaster, which has everything to do with theology, everything to do with what you believe to be true of God and true of humanity. I love when people say, well, theology is not important. It is the foundational, most important thing in the world. He states that there are five things that we can do to retrain, retain truth in such a system which will inevitably bring about suffering and persecution for the church. Firstly, he says we have to prefer nothing but the truth, but biblical truth. That we have to make uh, living in biblical truth the bedrock of our lives and accept the consequences that that brings no matter what because it's going to bring some consequences. Secondly, that we have to reclaim and defend cultural memory. That the totalitarian state seeks to erase cultural memory in peoples in order to control and that social media and entertainment are the most effective ways of doing this through our willing participation. And that is happening. History is being... Re Even Bill Mayer said that in, in recently that we're just erasing history and rewriting it. 
Thirdly, that we must establish and defend solidarity, which he defines as the bonds between small groups of people like church. This is why I preach that church is so important and that you be here. That the state will demoralize the masses through isolation and aloneness. How does that, have you felt that lately? But that we do this willingly in hiding behind our screens and not connecting in real community. Online stuff is not real community. You have to be in the room with people. You have to be known and you have to know others. Fourthly, we must strengthen our religion. And that's much more than going to church, although that means going to church. But it is really ways of finding out how do we live out these old truths of the Scripture. That without the biblical God, a a biblical Christian worldview, the values and the beliefs of that, we will not be able to resist. That in the end, we will be either committed to one, the one true faith, or we will apostatize under pressure. We will give in. And fifthly, that we must embrace the value of suffering. We must embrace the value of suffering. This guy, uh, I forget his name, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, I think his name is, uh, just wrote a book about this, this point. That if we're not willing to suffer the loss of uh, social status or job or comfort or freedom, even our own lives, for the sake of truth, then we've already given in to evil. Jesus didn't call admirers. He called disciples. And disciples cannot escape their cross. They must bear it. And you can tell the difference between an admirer and a disciple of Jesus when suffering comes. So remember, There will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Many will follow them, bringing the faith into disrepute. False teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. And they are bold and they are arrogant and they are not afraid to heap abuse on anybody. But God remains sovereign and God remains victorious. We've been through this before for centuries now. Remember, Revelation 21 speaks of the end of time. Listen to this passage. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. Amen. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. That time is coming. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is actually what the world wants. Verse 5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, 
They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There is absolute truth for all of us. And we are stewards of God's glorious message in Christ. A matter in a, that is a matter of life and death to everyone, not just us. There is eternal life in Christ that will be wonderful. And there also is eternal punishment for the enemies of God. I imagine you've never heard a sermon on hell before. I preached one about two years ago. It's the first time I'd heard one. As we await Christ's return, let's not be simply admirers, but let's choose to be true disciples of Jesus. Disciples that are willing to be obedient to the faith even to death, as Romans 2 verse 10 says. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, these are intense issues. And this is a matter of life and death. And we do want to be true disciples. We know that in that one passage, I think it's John chapter 6, people said this is hard teaching, who can deal with this, and they walked away. But Peter's response when he was asked if he would leave, he said, no, you're, we have found that you are the Son of God. You are the true one. You alone have the words of life. Where else can we go? Where else can we go but to you, Jesus? I pray this morning that you would fill us with a sense of seriousness about this, a sense of conviction in these things, but also a giant, just an outpouring of your love and your grace and your mercy as we live this out with others. We know that we are only a clanging cymbal and a banging gong if we're we're, we're doing this out of just intellect. So we pray for a passion and a love for people that enables us to do what you did on the cross. As people are nailing us to it, we say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I pray for that kind of love in us and a, and a willingness to go to even, to even to death for the sake of the gospel. Amen.